Hello, we're back. We have friends again, uh, Swathi and Jeevan. Uh, Swathi is awesome security friend uh, way back from the Netflix days uh, and is now a badass executive. Swathi, please say hi and introduce yourself. Hi, everyone. Hey, Travis. So thanks. Thanks for having me. Um, yeah, I'm the VP of security for Oracle SaaS. Excited to be here with friends. And uh, yeah, we're going to be talking about a lot of news and some really fun topics that Jeevan's going to cover too. Awesome. And then we have Jeevan as well. Jeevan is a, is an excellent security engineering leader. He's done a ton of innovative stuff. He's built great teams. Jeevan, thank you for coming. Say hi. Not from Netflix. Finally, we have a guest who I've worked with. Other, I guess we had Colleen too. But yeah, it's good to have a, a non-Netflix person on here. Yeah, th thanks for inviting me. I, I've worked with uh, Leaf in the past. Uh, I've worked together with Leaf uh, since about 2015-ish uh, time period. Then Leaf finally convinced me to join Segment, and we teamed up there and did some great work. And we got acquired by Twilio, and we're doing a lot of great work here at Twilio. So I run the product security and cloud security teams here at Twilio. Awesome. Okay, Leaf, shill things. Yeah, uh, we've got a few things to shill. The first one is Segment is doing a happy hour in New York on Tuesday. I'm not sure if the podcast will be out by then, but if it is and you listen to it, come by. And then we also have, uh, we're co-hosting the OWASP Global AppSec DC pre-party on Sunday night with a couple of other companies. And then speaking of which, Jeevan will be there presenting and we have uh, links to all of these in the show notes. So you can find those there. And uh, yeah, Travis, will kick it over to you for the first news story. Awesome. So Retool had a breach. Uh, I really like this write-up. They went into pretty good depth about what happened. So on August 27th, they got spearfished. Basically, sev several employees were targeted with this. They got claims from what appeared to be IT saying that there was some account issue that was going to prevent them from doing benefits enrollment. Uh, they'd also recently moved to Okta, so the attackers were in part exploiting that. The attackers sent a domain that looked like Okta, but it was like an Okta dot something. Uh, and then most people rejected it or ignored it. But unfortunately, one employee did click it. In that, they had a fake Okta page. Employee put in, you know, username, password, and then there was an MFA push that they or a prompt that they also put in. And then at that point, the attacker called them. And according to the article, they used a deep fake of the IT employee's voice to actually say, hey, we, we need you to give us another MFA code. That MFA code led the attacker to be able to enroll their device to that employee's account. And then from that point, they could clear any MFA challenges. And then they got a active G Suite session on the attacker's device and then did all of the typical attack things that you would expect from a breach like that. In the article, they specifically called out a very unhelpful G Suite feature, which is that it will, by default, if you enroll in this, it will sync up your MFA to to G Cloud. So basically, you know, in that case, it takes what is MFA and makes it single factor again, because if somebody gets your G Suite account, then they, they're getting all of your MFA codes. And they said that it, this is on by default and, you know, more problematic. There's not a way for your admin. If you're a G Suite admin, you can't just turn this feature off for everybody. So, you know, overall on this, what I thought is, you know, this is a great write-up. I love these kinds of posts, it shares a lot, you know, what's going on and other people can learn from it. Uh, this is another nudge for hardware tokens everywhere. I think, you know, if you if you had a YubiKey or something, it would be very hard for the attackers to execute this. And this is the first time that I've actually heard about uh, deepfake being used this way. I thought that was very interesting. Obviously, we, we've seen this technology, but this is the first time I've seen it in a breach write-up. What'd y'all think of this? Yeah, I thought the deepfake stuff was really interesting, especially because I know that there's some banks that use like the voice password and stuff. I wonder if we'll see that get phased out. I also wonder if we're going to see 
any sort of legislation get pushed on the mobile carriers. Like I know that we had something a few years ago that like made some of the caller ID stuff better and that kind of thing. But like, I would hope if there's one thing that our ancient Congress can agree on, it's protecting people from getting phone scammed because the people that are most likely to fall for that are probably their peers. And I'm sure at some point it'll turn into like a privacy and surveillance nightmare, but it does seem like we're heading towards a situation where phones become really difficult to trust for sensitive info, especially for all of us have done plenty of, of conference talks. Like people could deep fake any of us just based off of the you know amount of data that's out there. Should we be doing this podcast? Like giving you more content for folks to do deep fakes? It's, yeah. too, it's too late, Jeevan. This was a really interesting one. It sort of reminded me of the octopus hackers of last year, um, where they targeted a bunch of uh, companies in itself. And yeah, it was quite messy last year. It looked ex- very much similar sort of thing, but as you mentioned, the deep fake one was quite interesting. So very, very terrifying indeed. I'm uh, glad that uh, Sneer at uh, Retool was able to share a lot with us and a lot of great uh, learnings in itself. And it's always frustrating when F- F- MFA is not MFA. Um, we've seen that with other breaches in the past where not particularly like this, but like when people assume that they have MFA and they're going to be safe, they learned that they, it isn't actually enabled uh, MFA. So a lot of great learnings for me to take back to the team and see, okay, well, are we doing all the right things uh, internally? Um, but I, yeah, it's going to be a very interesting moving forward with uh, how do we deal with deepfakes as well. Yeah, I think for me, the interesting thing was, I think we should give credit uh, that the response was really quick. So I think in the article, it said like only about 27 account takeovers. And I know that seems large, but I know it was really quick. So you always know the first, you know, few minutes are really crucial. So look, looks like they had their, you know, response process really down and they did react uh, really great. So I think that's good. And I agree, you know, really good, good write up. As you were kind of talking about the news, I of course couldn't help but wonder like with the other news um, and stuff that Leaf will cover too, like there's so much overlap with MFA being compromised and especially like spear phishing. I remember from the Mandian days, we would constantly say, oh yeah, you know, let's not even guess the attack vector. Somebody was spear phished. But I think that is the reality. Like it continues to be kind of highly targeted, right? Like, and it works. So yeah, I think basic security hygiene. Yeah, it only takes one of these to get through. And it's still, you know, the, the percent of people that can read a domain successfully is still very low. I have often wondered why still browsers aren't doing even more to highlight this. Like it mm-hmm. should be possible in a browser to say, hey, this you know has a subdomain of something that's really popular, but this is you know a tiny domain compared to like what you think it might be. And just, you know, because the, the problem with this is there's type one and type two thinking, right? And a lot of people are on autopilot mm-hmm. much of the time. But if you do something to actually like make them slow down and think about it, any kind of friction there could be enough for them to actually consider it. So I'd, I'd love to see still even more of that. Obviously, like Chrome and other browsers have done a good job integrating some of these features, but I still think there's more room to go. Yeah, I'm really glad this discussion isn't really attacking the person that actually got fished in itself. Any one of us could get spearfished. Uh, those techniques uh, and social engineering techniques are, I, I know it's very susceptible, so I, I never blame that. And I know that security folks, uh, even though that we've been sort of tuned to look out for these things, we can definitely fall for it as well. So much more looking for a technological and non-human sort of solution for this. Yeah. And then on top of that, I mean, the article said that they had knowledge of like floor plans and coworkers and like processes about the company. So 
you know, it's like on top of the deep fake stuff, you know, being able to walk the walk a little bit more even and, you know, be able to reference stuff to make somebody believe that you are this person. I think it gets even harder to prevent spear phishing when somebody's doing the research and like really faking it. Yeah, for sure. All right, let's move on. Leaf, you got the next one. Cool. So yeah, this one is as Swathi alluded to also has some elements of phishing in it, but I'm sure at this point, everybody has heard of the MGM cyber fiasco. If you haven't, I'm not sure how you're also listening to this podcast, but uh, we welcome you. And so a medium-sized summary of this, it's a very big story. Um, on September 11th, MGM disclosed that they were dealing with a cyber incident, a ton of critical services, including its website, online reservations, ATM slot machines were down. I saw videos on TikTok of completely empty casino floors, which is crazy. I've, I've never seen that. And it's worth noting that this also impacted non-Vegas MGM properties. So you might've been affected even if you were you know, at some other MGM location, you know, on the East Coast or whatever. The article linked from 404 Media, which no affiliation to us, uh, 404 Security Not Found, describes what it was like to be in Vegas when this attack was happening. And I thought it was really fascinating. Um, they said none of the digital kiosks at the food court worked. Employees were writing receipts by hand. Employees were delivering orders like to the kitchen manually to like multiple restaurants throughout the casino. So they're literally just like walking around the casino to make all this stuff happen that normally would have been automated. There were employees cashing out customer slot machine winnings by hand. So there's some guy walking around with a bag and just writing down like the machine number and like, okay, I paid this person $16 or whatever. And the initial vector was, was phishing. And the ransomware group Scattered Spider was able to get admin access in Okta and Azure. And according to some of the posts from the group, MGM tried to evict them from their Okta tenant. That didn't work. At this point, they ransomware 100 hypervisors. And uh, one part that I thought was really clever, the group combined two of the execs passwords to create a new password for the exfiltrated data which was one, a good way to show them how much access they have. And then two, it was a good way to like give them access to the data without sending the, the password in clear text. MGM wasn't the only casino that got hit. MGM also got hit with ransomware, but paid about 15 million, which isn't surprising considering the level of disruption that MGM has faced and like the real world dollars associated with a casino not working. And I had a friend who was, uh, he works for Pangea, which is a company in the security feature space. And he was in Vegas last week for, I think for the CrowdStrike conference. And they got a piece of paper at check-in saying like, hey, our phone system isn't working. You may have issues getting money in and out. And the last thing I'll highlight here is I think some of us probably saw the MGM job posting making the rounds on Twitter where they're looking for a Red Hat uh, Linux admin to work seven days a week, 10 hours a day until the job was done. And yeah, I, I was also reminded that MGM suffered a breach in 2019 when guest info for 102 million guests was stolen after one of their cloud services was attacked. So I don't even know how you recover from something like this while people that are higher up in the casino are probably telling you like, we got to keep all this stuff on because I'm sure the attackers are just like worming their way through the network as you're trying to stamp them out. But yeah, sorry, really long read in, but yeah, big story. Yeah, this is fascinating. You know, so much in security, I think that, you know, we see companies have breaches and maybe their stock takes a, a hit for like a couple of weeks. But, you know, they're back, like actually tracing an impact 
from security breaches has been hard. Uh, it's been mostly you know, fines and judgments, litigation, you get sued, the incident response time involved and, and all of those costs, obviously. But it's relatively rare that we actually see like dollar impact. I remember that the Maersk breach, you know, where they shut down like the shipping lanes for a month or whatever. That was one of the big ones because that's lost business. We have the same thing here. MGM, they they calculate some amount of money that they make whenever they run. And that stuff not running and then bringing in new staff to support all of their basic operations is going to cost them money. So I obviously don't want for anybody to have a breach. But you know, when when your business is liter- literally printing cash, um, hopefully other people will think like, okay, there's there's real impact here, and we need to keep this thing running. Yeah, you can quantify the breach cost with this, which is fantastic. What I'm a little bit more concerned with is Caesars, as uh, Leaf you mentioned, they paid the ransom. Does that make them more susceptible to future attacks, whereas MGM they didn't? Yeah. So. I'm curious about your your thoughts on this. Yeah, I don't know if you can really draw any conclusions from if you paid, then you open yourself up, or if you don't, then you open yourself up. I think it's really hard to say. And I think the threat actor motive is one of the most interesting, unpredictable things in threat intelligence, right? And often, even if we say, okay, we know this specific group and we know their modus operandi, we've also seen that changing. We've especially seen it with, say, APT38 or the North Korean group, right? We've never seen, this was a few years ago, I think, when the Bangladesh bank heist happened. We had never seen a nation state that was financially motivated because that was just not how they would work. And suddenly we saw that huge change. So I think it's very hard to say. And I think, Travis, to your point of, you know, risk reduction and, you know, quantification of risk, how can we say if the payoff is okay? I think this is an interesting one. If you look at the DBIR breach report for for the recent one for last year, right, the median ransomware payment is like twenty five thousand or twenty six thousand. And then if you look at the cost of a uh, uh, EDR tool, like it won't even cover a few hundred hosts, right? And so if we are paying two point five mil, you know, three million for EDR, then if that's supposed to help you against uh, ransomware, then you look at the payments. So is it worth it, right? Like, I think that's a great question to ask. I've said this a few times on the podcast. I'm not like the most litigation forward person in the world or government regulation, but I think that we could basically like shut down or reduce it by like 90% overnight if the government just said it is illegal to pay ransomware. Like you cannot pay it. Uh, if you do that, then we're going to come and prosecute you. Obviously, like in the moment, there's a game theory thing, right? Like the, the individual company that's struggling, their incentive is like, okay, it's going to cost us 50 million to recover from this. If we pay the 15, you know, maybe it'll go away. But if, if we just made it illegal, then that whole vector would basically shut down. So I, I think that it is time to do something like this. What do you think are some crazy externalities that would happen if you would do that? Because I feel like, you know, there's always a risk. I, I like at the surface without putting a ton of thought into it, like probably agree with you that it should be illegal to stop the whole ecosystem. But like, I feel like there's also some crazy stuff that probably happens as a result of being like, hey, these payments are illegal. Is like, then do people start to try to just cover up the whole breach? Because they're like, well, I don't want it to get out that we got that we made the ransomware payment. And so now we're just going to try to push the whole thing under the rug. I mean, if you make it just illegal, like, you know, not disclosing a breach is, you know, maybe not illegal. But if you just say it is actually illegal to, to do this, I don't really believe in conspiracies that involve more than two people. 
So I think that, you know, a whole organization conspiring to hide from the government that they made a ransom payment. I mean, there is actually just the logistics of making a payment too. Like that's going to show up very visibly somehow in your finances. I think Leaf makes also a good point of, you know, this was similar to what we've seen with insurances, right? So the premiums rising because the ransomware demands were rising. And then it's such a self-fulfilling prophecy. And then we saw attackers go after against the insurance companies just to get a list of who is paying really high insurance so they can go target them. So yeah, I think it will be something similar. I think people will find a way, right? Like, because some people will argue that then cryptocurrency should be banned because that's the main way that ransom payment is made, right? So now, how many things are you going to really ban? And will we find another mode just to make the payment? Or we might find just another way of fulfilling the demands if it's not specifically, you know, ransom or something else. Yeah, that's a fair point. I mean, attackers could always say, okay, you can't pay our ransom, but you can spin up you know, $20 million worth of computers and, and mine, yeah, mine Monero for us or whatever. All right, awesome. Let's move on. Uh, Swati, you got the next one. All right. So this is um, a write-up from Viz, and I will say really, really well-written article. This is around, uh, you know, 38 TB of data that was accidentally exposed through Microsoft's AI researchers. So this is this was Viz's research. So misconfigured SS tokens were responsible or were to blame here, you know, upon and finding the training data on GitHub, Viz data scan and they found sort of exposed data on the repository. SAS tokens basically give you access to Azure storage accounts. So the tokens give you access to that. And it was interesting with this one that the account itself was private, right? Like the account itself was really private. The token was kind of responsible and was given overly wide permissions. The expiration was also like set to limitless and then it had full access. So there were two issues here, overly permissive access and then also full control. So instead of just read only, you had access to download all of the data. The data also included, you know, somebody, I think the two employees full disk data as well. So it had training model data, it had chat messages from teams. So, so a lot of data. Um, so the Wes article also talks about, I think this is important, talks about three type of, uh, you know, SAS tokens and making the right decisions and picking the type of tokens that you want to pick. So if you want to kind of disable account SAS tokens, then you use, you know, service one or user delegation one. So they also go through, I think I like the article also because they go through some of the mitigation techniques, some of the things that you could use to avoid this in the future. So I would say really nice write-up. Yeah, that's a lot of data. Yes. And I think what was really interesting for me was just two weeks ago, I was at a conference where we were talking about, you know, AI and, you know, how machine learning models basically use of security to defenses, security defenses to protect some of the ML related technologies that companies are putting out and also using ML for security, right? Like how can we use ML to do better security? And I remember thinking, oh, you know, uh, training data leakage or model data theft you know, we haven't seen that, you know, we haven't seen that happening. It's in the future and it's happening, right? Like it's here. Yeah. I think those of us that have worked in big companies, the data infrastructure part of the organization is always like a little bit of a 
security scary spot, right? Like by definition, they have to ingest and output a lot of data. And then just because of the way that data moves in those systems, it's hard to put the typical security controls. You need a different kind of approach there. And so, yeah, I mean, we we had a data infrastructure focused part of our squad at Netflix to, to help address these systems. They were doing a lot of projects with security to to kind of and help lock these things down. Microsoft obviously has a great security organization. There's a lot of great people that work there and they have a huge security suite. So, I mean, this kind of thing just goes to show also that this can happen to anybody. Like these kinds of systems, you know, Microsoft by no means has a weak program. And for this to happen to them, I think shows that all of us need to be paying more attention to the data ecosystem. I think you nailed it. Security is hard. But security at scale is infinitesimally harder, um, and there's so many things can that can go wrong at any point. Uh, one of the things that I found a little bit scary was uh, I saw some images of the leak, and it looked like there was DMs in there as well, like a Microsoft Teams DM. Do I have to now become professional with my DMs? I'm terrified of uh, if my DMs ever get leaked. Oh yeah, yeah, nightmare case. Travis, is this URL thing? Is this something resourcely could have prevented with? guardrails for Azure? Any Anything that you can provision, yes. Anything anything managed in Terraform, call us. Or don't worry, sales will call you. Yeah, I think similar, Rick, there are a bunch of issues kind of with the tokens. Like one was the permissions issue that's very high level of access to, it was granting high level of access to the storage account. And then they had an expiration problem. And then once you would have the tokens issued, Azure sort of didn't know that now we don't know if how we can manage these tokens. So centralized management was not there. So I think this is a classic case of many things have gone wrong for this to happen, but also a good use case. Now we have many levers that we can use to kind of avoid this from happening. Yeah, apples are complex too. Uh, we, we've seen you know time and time again, like folks need help with this. This is why we, we built RepoKit at Netflix is to make it so that individual engineers don't have to worry about you know IAM rules and permissions and things like that. So I think the same kind of approach would work in these sort of systems if you had any kind of monitoring of the data, like what's actually being exercised here. One thing that Swathi started to touch on it and that I found interesting in the article is it was seemed very challenging to do rotation because if you rotated the thing that would invalidate the key, it was actually going to kill it for everybody else too, like all the legitimate users. And I'm not super well-versed in CloudSec, but I was wondering, like, I know AWS has the concept of like assigned URL that seemed like pretty similar to this. Is it that same process? Like if you wanted to kill off some of these things or or is AWS a little bit easier to use in this instance or is I mean, it not lot, comparable? Yeah, I mean, a lot of times you really can't nuke uh, an existing token. So if you use a pre-signed URL that's tied, tied to an IAM role and then the, those credentials are going to be available for a period of time. So if you actually want to nuke that access, then you actually have to go put like deny policies on the role. We built a, a whole machine for doing this at Netflix in case attackers got into any of our user sessions, we'd be able to like go and put this on and evict them. But yeah, there's not really a way to do like revocation um, very easily. All right, let's move on. Next one. Leaf, you're up again. All right. This one's a lot quicker, I promise. Um, so this one is about Clorox has been under a cyber attack that's disrupting production almost a month later. And I didn't see a ton of details about the attack itself, just that there was unauthorized access to some of their IT systems. Could be phishing. 
I don't know, sounds sounds possible. But the response required them to revert to manual processes in a lot of areas, which reduced their ability to fill orders. And as we talked about a few weeks ago, new InfoSec rules from the SEC went into place on September 5th, and Clorox in their filings used the phrase material financial impact, just like the SEC bar for when you need to report this. And I think probably the most interesting part of the story is that they've actually filed a handful of notices. And so I think it's just demonstrating the stuff that we talked about last time, where it's like, people aren't going to know what they need to do. They're not going to be sure like when they actually have to do this, there's going to be a lot of confusion. And so I think that we are probably going to see at least until we figure out what the norms are in abundance of like over filings in, in some cases. So yeah, I just wanted to get y'all's thoughts on this. Better to overfile than underfile. Yeah, it's a, it's always a problem if you get in trouble with the regulators, and that doesn't wash away from you uh, for a short time. It's many many years of a lot of strong relationship building and due diligence. So I totally agree with Travis. Better to overfile than underfile in these situations. There's probably a new a new opportunity for somebody to be like a like a new type of consultant. Like maybe it's related to IR consulting, but basically you you have some kind of an incident. You know, your legal team are not experts in this. Or maybe it's like a branch of your corporate counsel if you use an external one. But basically, like something happened, I'm going to give this person a rundown. Uh, you know, maybe have them on a retainer, and then they're going to tell me, you know, within all of the existing kind of cases, what is and isn't in scope for this kind of filing. And also, I think if I look at the filings from Caesars and MGM, they're so like they're vastly different, right? Uh, if you compare the two, one has sort of a ge- generic statement. Uh, and I think similar sort of with the Clorox one too. And the other one kind of goes into detail. So I think we kind of see here there isn't really, uh, it's at the discretion, obviously, of the company. Um, and they're, they're vastly kind of different. And to your point, Travis, I don't know. I think you're right. Like it's not purely an incident response consulting sort of role. But at the, at the same time, when you are in the thick of the things, right, like you you expect that kind of advice or counsel. So I think, yeah, there might be a new business opportunity. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it probably doesn't make sense to have this expertise like in-house for most companies, but it's like, like we have IR firms on retainer. When I need them, I really need them. And I need someone that's really ramped up on the latest and, you know, when to file and can give me guidance and point to other incidents that are similar and maybe like benchmark me. And then listening to all of the stories, right? They're vastly so different. Like the defender in me, the the analyst in me, it's like, okay, Clorox, you know, Caesars, MGM, you know, Microsoft, there seems to be like different attack vectors, different industries, you know, like different groups. So that's kind of interesting because generally when we see an uptick, we've seen an uptick sort of in, in ransomware, sometimes if it's if it's specific group, specific motive, you can see that it's clubbed together in the same industry, like either healthcare or either oil and gas. That's not the case here. I think it'll be interesting to kind of closely follow and see see uh, what else is going to happen. Awesome, Jeevan, you have the last story. Yeah, super excited to talk about California and just passing of Bill three sixty two, which is called the Delete Act. And what this actually does uh, is that it makes it really easy for consumers 
to have all of their data deleted with data brokers. So I guess most people will wonder what is a data broker and why is this important? So let's answer the data broker part. Um, so according to CCPA, uh, California Consumer Privacy Act, uh, a data broker is a business that sells personal information of a consumer with whom the business did not have a direct relationship. So I tried to do some searching. I, I thought maybe it might be some like larger social media folks that might be falling under it just from the word data broker, but none of the Twitters, the Facebooks or the Googles are uh, part of this. This is more for uh, things like Zoom Info, Rocket Reach, Crunchbase, those sort of companies. So I'm not too sure if any of you folks ever Google your name. Uh, I do it occasionally and my name pops up on a bunch of sites and these sites are like, I feel that they scrape LinkedIn or other social media sites and they're selling access to my email, phone number and all that sort of stuff. And this is important because I don't know about you, but I, I want to make sure that I'm the one that's sharing my information with the companies that I want to share with. And I don't want the rocket reaches or the zoom infos to sell access to my information. I don't even want those companies to have access to my information. So what bill 362 is going to do is can make a lot of us consumers happy. Um, what we're, well, at least the ones that live in California. So I'm definitely jealous uh, of you folks. Um, it's going to be possible in the future for Californians to have one click to delete data with all of the data brokers. Um, you don't have to go to them individually. You don't even have to know if they have your data or not. Uh, just one click. And after 45 days, uh, well, within those 45 days, they have to actually delete the data that they have. So a lot of folks just don't even know that these companies are storing your information. Now, now they can make sure that they no longer are. So one of the cool things that I saw is that California also had all these data brokers listed on one of the government websites, and you can search and figure out which these companies are. So anyways, super, super excited as a consumer. Um, I'm hoping that other jurisdictions like Canada, we start uh, doing implementing these sort of rules and we have more control over our data itself. I'm 100% on the same page. However, I think that, you know, California having its own thing that's different from, you know, if Canada does one, this is going to make it hell for anybody to do business. I think we should just roll out like some kind of privacy focused thing that's general. I mean, this is why we have the United States, right? So we, you can, it's possible to do business and you don't have like 50 different jurisdictions that you have. So I, I would like to see it more centralized, but yeah, I think in general, this is a great thing. Like my phone is dead to me. I can't pick it up anymore because like so many people will call me and try and sell me stuff. I was expecting a call earlier today from somebody I actually know, and I got a number and it was somebody trying to sell me recruiting services. So this, this needs to stop. It's just like makes the phone and like email somewhat unusable. That might be just you, Travis. People are just... <laughs> I'm sure you get tons of calls. Yeah, I do. I do. And I, I just like you, like I don't pick up, right? If I, if I don't know the number, which means sometimes people have to go to voicemail and they can't. Yeah. So that is, you know, disruptive. But yeah, I, I really believe sort of, you know, freedom with the consumer and the user, right? Like you should be able to own your own data and dictate it. And I know that's like the big dream and that's not uh, sort of sometimes the reality. I still feel laws can only do that much. There is a certain trust and security responsibility that lies with the products. Yeah. My issue with the data brokers, though, is it's like they're not really providing you a service for your data. And like, say what you will about like Facebook or, you know, Twitter, Instagram, whatever. But it's like you're signing up and like you, in theory, are getting a benefit from being on the website. Whereas the data brokers, they're just like scooping up this information from all over the Internet and just like selling this data to somebody else that's not you. So it's like you're not even benefiting from the service. My one complaint about this is it's not going to go into effect until 2026, which feels like a really long time for something like this. Like I understand giving 
legitimately slow moving industries time to adapt to regulations like manufacturing or like food or cars or like, I don't know, stuff that actually like requires planning. But for this, it's like, I wish it was either next year or 2025 at the latest. And you just tell them it's like, Hey, you either need to figure this stuff out or we're going to make it impossible for you to do business. It's like, I really don't feel like a company like this needs a three-year lead time to figure out how to respond to a JSON request that says, Hey, delete all of my shit. Um, like this is not an important industry to Californians. Like we don't need to give them a bunch of time to figure this out. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it reminds me of the the credit reporting agencies, Experian and Equifax and TransUnion. You don't do business with them, but their your data is their product. Like they've got, you know, your social security number, all the stuff that you've bought, where you've lived and all this stuff. And then it's like, oh, oopsies, we had a breach. And there's no like recourse for that. It's super frustrating. I don't feel sorry for the data brokers, but I have, I don't know if you all had to re-architect your data when GDPR came uh, about, but that was a painful process for organizations that never thought about data architecture and how to actually do things. So I'm guessing that these folks probably don't get too many GDPR uh, deletion requests because a lot of folks probably don't even know that they exist. Uh, so that time probably makes sense just from making sure that they architect their data correctly so it's easier for data to be deleted. So again, but I'm with you all. Businesses that had to comply with GDPR, like these are all garbage businesses. Yeah, like, that's, the, that's the difference in my mind is it's like, it makes sense to give real businesses time to adapt to legislation. But these businesses, if they went out of business, nobody would care. You'd probably be happy and better off. So it's like, in these cases, it's like, I feel like you should push them to run a little bit. And it's like, sure, if a few of the data brokers just stop existing, like, oh, well, nobody's going to miss you. Think of the poor salespeople, Leaf. Zoom Info will figure it out. The, the good data brokers will figure it out. And the ones who are worse are probably doing a worse job with security too. Because uh, I think security is often just like, you know, some factor of engineering. And so if they can't figure out how to delete my data in one year from now. Like, see, ya, you don't deserve my data. I'm with you. Yeah. 2026 is a crazy timeline. You should be able to make something happen before then if you're sufficiently motivated. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, Jeevan, you're going to lead us in a special discussion topic. Yeah, so uh, I'm going to be speaking at Global AppSec this year, and the topic is around scaling application security. And it is a hard problem, especially when we do it at enterprises and at scale. So I definitely want to bring up the topic about what are the problems with scaling security engineering programs at scale? What does good security engineering team look like? Why is it so hard to hire great security engineers? And what type of tooling works in these sort of environments? I, Twilio, uh, we have to be very careful with the vendors that we choose because a number of them, we actually DOS them. Our scale is so large that we send way too much volume of uh, information and their services can't even keep up. So definitely want to bring this up. Uh, the three things that I found very useful for me, especially at uh, a company like Twilio, focus areas that I had was hiring our vulnerability management program and uh, really focusing on security tooling and ensuring that we have strong coverage across the entire ecosystem. So with respect to hiring, um, it's really difficult to hire the right people um, within uh, within the organization. And um, for me personally, obviously we do all the same things that every company does. We have to dive deep on their threat, threat modeling capabilities, their technical capabilities. Can they do software development? But I feel the strongest attribute that was very successful for our organization is 
really uh, making sure that they have strong empathy for the team, but also empathy for our stakeholders, our developers, or other stakeholder teams within the security organization. And I'm curious, what do you all think? Like, how do you hire? How do you make sure that you're hiring the right people for your for your organizations? Yeah, I strong feelings on this topic for sure. Uh, I think you know, in security, we tend to do this kind of like ivory tower thing where they're like, "Well, you know, we're going to tell you about vulnerabilities, and then it's your responsibility to fix everything." I don't find that very valuable. Like, really, I think to your point about how do you hire great security engineers, they need to have at least some familiarity with engineering so that they have empathy. Right. Like if you have no understanding of like what a development process is like, you know, what those folks are motivated by, like the deadlines that they're under, you know, their kind of knowledge of security, like, you know, in, in security, like we take our knowledge for granted, but the, you know, there's a lot to learn. There's so much stuff going on here. And we can't expect a very de- busy developer is going to get themselves ramped up on like the three kinds of sc- cross-site scripting and things like that. So yeah, I think I think the number one is like people that have done some kind of development before and can have empathy for that. So there were less ivory tower and more, you know, really like coming uh, to you as a partner. I think it's the hardest thing, right? Um, so a couple of points here. I think if we consider something, say, like a BISO function, right? Like a security champion or security ambassador, I think similar to what Travis said, if you understand the pain of the consumer and pain of the stakeholder that you are engaging with, you'll definitely be a better partner. And for example, I remember we were trying to build a really solid like studio partnership program when we were at Netflix and studio worked very differently, right? Like they were very collaborative. It's a creative process. They wanted somebody there working with them hand in hand. So we said, okay, why don't we look at people who've worked in a very cross-functional kind of matrix, a high, you know, altitude, high stress kind of situation. So I remember hiring somebody from NASA, right? Like they are so cross-functional. They've worked with so many different, different teams, like multiple pieces kind of coming together. And then we said, okay, why don't we hire somebody from Disney? They understand the process. They understand how sort of the studio workflow works and then kind of combine them together. Then there is magic, right? Like as a, as a manager and as a leader, you kind of give them all the tools to succeed. You have the right skill set. You have the right kind of attitude. And then we saw that we, you know, we saw tremendous improvement in sort of that engagement with studio security. And we were able to do a lot of things. And then the other one kind of comes to mind is familiarity with frameworks, right? Like we are all in very uh, heterogeneous environments. Um, I remember kind of myself going from Mandiant, which was a security consulting company, to Netflix, which was a consumer security company, to Oracle, which is an enterprise company, like completely different. So in in a lot of ways, like you had to use different frameworks. It was different technologies and be able to like unlearn a lot of the things that you learned in the in the previous job and say, oh, can I really apply it here? Or maybe not, maybe in a different way, right? Like, so to be able to adapt. Yeah, those are kind of the two things came to my mind. Uh, something that Clint said a long time ago really like has always stuck with me, which is I think the state of the art here is making it so that engineers don't have to worry about security, right? So instead of them, them really like understanding all these kinds of vulnerabilities, it's all about ways to strike those classes of vulnerability off the board, right? Give them a simple pattern. It's like, you know, we use React here and it's going to prevent cross-site scripting. Like this is a snippet that you can use whenever you need to engage with a database that will do parameterization of your queries or, or whatever technique that you're using there. And then you can you can accumulate those, you know, across all kinds of verticals. So like, you know, this is the identity aware proxy that you just, you know, there's add these two lines into your app and 
will integrate this identity aware proxy and it handles you know all of the authentication gives you a simple layer for auth um auth z so all of these things kind of add up and then really what engineers need to know at that point is the existence of these tools you know how to engage with them and then what kinds of things that they should reach out when they have questions about and who to reach out to for help and have a good partnership with those folks like that's really the the best you know possible obviously there's still going to be work that needs to be done you know your your application is going to have vulnerabilities in in things that it's using and in those cases you know really like a great security team can explain to the engineers a couple of things you know what's the impact of this like how urgent is it to fix this particular thing I and mean, give them context on like what they see the risk is for this occurring and then specific action to take um and you can do a whole bunch of things to make that process easier too so like one of the things Netflix invested in, I thought was great. It wasn't in security, but supported security it was a great base image with all of the stuff that you need, an easy way to build images, and then an easy way to redeploy everything from a clean slate. So then in that model, really the engineering's responsibility is to make sure that they have good enough tests that they can see if some kind of updates are breaking them, and then to periodically redeploy their application at a cadence that makes sense for them. Yeah, we have something similar at Segment for the like blessed images. And I know like ChainGuard is is providing this for customers, which I think is great for companies that like don't want to or don't know how to build this stuff themselves. I do think that we need still need to see more movement on terms of like the big products that are kind of the building blocks of security doing a better job on this stuff by default because there's plenty of companies that don't have any security people and like yeah maybe they should or you know whatever but like i think it needs to be easier in the absence of having a security team that's like just building stuff for your life to be easy for people to get this right because like most orgs don't have that luxury and probably like won't oh, what were some other major security engineering problems that you faced at scale that you might not have faced at a startup? So all of the, just even coordinating all of the asks that you have for engineers to do, right? Like there's a whole bunch of different security teams, you know, when you're operating at scale, they all have different concerns. Everybody's asking for engineers for stuff and just giving them kind of like a central place to ingest those recommendations, you know, with some kind of priority on it, uh, along with some, some way of knowing, like, how are they actually doing? So obviously like nobody's going to fix all of the potential things and like, nor should you, but like benchmarking, you know, your relative risk versus another part of the organization, like that's useful. And this is the kind of thing I think that only exists in big companies when you just have so many security teams asking for so much stuff that you need some kind of a way to like ingest those and, and see the priority. Yeah. Where do I start? I feel like, you know, well management, right? Like, yeah, we want to get out of this cycle of prioritizing the vulnerabilities and, you know, patching and prioritize and patch. But there is still sometimes you will come across tech debt. And you have to manage it such a way that it doesn't becomes insurmountable. We don't want that for the team. So I think kind of managing that. And then, you know, a lot of times I've also seen in, in a lot of tech companies, right? Like we are, we are very innovation driven. We want to do the next shiny thing. So now we don't have, you know, the settlers and the town planners, right? Like we don't have people or people don't want to do the, oh, if it's not the next shiny new thing, then people don't want to work on that. But there is a lot of the run the business, you know, regular, regular things that need to happen in a security team for us to be effective, right? Like, so how can we kind of put, put both of them at the, the sort of the same level and say, hey, look, like both of these skill set or, you know, mindset, it's needed for a security team to be high performing. So we, we want both of that. So how do we do that is kind of another challenge. And I think, 
for me, I've been really trying to get the team to focus on, okay, how do we do risk-based decisions, right? And that becomes really hard at scale because you have to look at controls, say, on the left and then look at risk on the right and say, how do we balance that out? Okay, are we sort of being innovative in some of the approaches like WAF or, you know, authentication and authorization, like Travis mentioned? So by increasing that sort of leverage, are we reducing risk someplace else? So in a very kind of complex, large, environment in a scale state that's a difficult thing to do i think one thing to touch on for the like people want to be doing the next thing isn't just a problem in security i think it's also something in engineering and i feel like one of the reasons for that is like the way that promos are decided like i think that this is one of the things that has been talked a lot about like the culture of at google about like why stuff gets killed is because you have a bunch of people that are like hey i'm gonna build this new thing it's like cool we launched it get those people promoted. And then there isn't really an incentive to like actually stick around and like actually make the thing good. It's just like, all right, launched it. Got to go launch something else or I'm never going to get promoted to principal. And it isn't really those people's fault. Like I, I don't really like blame them for wanting to get promoted, but it, it really does feel like something where there should be a better system for promoting people that are like keeping things running. And I think part of that is probably like you need to get better about talking about the value of like X, Y, and Z thing and like the value that it has to the organization. But like, I do feel like there is a pretty big emphasis on promo cases for like person shipped big thing. Yeah. I call it presentation driven development. That's exactly right. Yeah. You, you go and build a thing, you do the, the open source and the conference talk and the blog post and whatever. And then it's, you know, you've done the fun stuff. People don't tend to want to stick around and do the kind of like boring, crappy maintenance part. I do think we need to shift that though, because the impact isn't realized when you launch something. It's realized when you've actually like deployed it, like people are using it. It's getting value. You know, it's not like breaking all the time and causing issues. So yeah, we need to do something about that for sure. We touched slightly about security tooling and being a challenge at scale. And there are some ecosystems where you acquire a lot of companies. So that's always an interesting challenge. Uh, like how do you ensure that you have dozens, if not hundreds of GitHub organizations and tens of thousands of GitHub repos. How do you ensure you cover, have full coverage across all the ecosystem, especially when like it's so heterogeneous, you have different frameworks, different languages, uh, different tooling, different clouds even uh, across it. So that's another fun uh, topic uh, dealing with uh, security at scale that sometimes a lot of the smart smaller companies don't have to deal with right yeah I mean the other part of that too is companies acquire other companies different ways so you know like Microsoft for example is known for like being I think you know to their benefit they're pretty like hands-off in acquisitions like github still runs the way that they did you know as far as I know when they were acquired LinkedIn is still run as a separate business with their own teams for everything and I think that's actually good some companies you know they they, they acquire you and they fold you into the mothership and then you know all of the original people that were there, say like, oh, this isn't fun anymore. So, but the, the problem with that is like you said, now you've, you're basically supporting, you know, end companies worth of infrastructure. And so your security team and other infra support teams have exponential work on their plate. Yeah, I think the same thing applies to like any of the other foundational teams like inch tooling or whatever. It's like, sure, one team is like, yeah, it's really great for us to use Elixir for this thing. It's like, all right, well, you wanting to use this one weird thing for this one project, now means that you're not getting the benefits of all the other stuff that like security and engineering tooling and like the foundation teams have built to like 
make things easy. And like, sure, maybe it is worth it to explore this new language. Uh, but I would say oftentimes it's like, if you were to look at it from the business standpoint, the answer would be no. And it's like, same thing with trying to do stuff in multiple clouds. Like, are you going to hire another set of cloud security people to understand Google when everything else that you've done is in AWS? Are you going to like staff up the Eng tooling team to make the level of support for the Google stuff? Like, 75% as good as the AWS stuff, or are you just going to like kind of pretend that this problem doesn't exist and like let that foundational stuff of which security is a portion languish? Yeah. And I think the reality is we cannot plug every hole, right? Like that, we, we know that. And I think this is where I kind of dislike sort of the coverage based uh, sort of I think mindset. Oh, say there is a specific tooling that say 5,000 people are using versus say 20,000 developers are using, right? Now I'm going to focus where there is bigger adoption, bigger attack surface, bigger like critical mass, because yeah, I have priorities. And as, as security teams, we also have limited budgets and limited focus time. So yeah, I kind of, you know, to your point, like I don't like sort of the coverage based. I think it should be very much, you know, offensive attacker and threat based and, and kind of looking at our portfolio and saying what's the most important things. What do you mean? Like uh, these uh, hackers are not going to look at our OKRs and uh, attack those? No, no, they're not looking at our CMMI levels of maturity. No. I also do think that part of it is organizational, though where it's like, you should be making a more informed decision about adopting something that is bucking the trend of everything else. Like, I feel like one of the things that really made a lot of things a lot easier at Segment was the fact that we only had two languages. Pretty much everything was either TypeScript or Go. And like, yeah, there was a few exceptions to that, but it's like from an eng tooling standpoint and a security standpoint, as long as you supported those two things, like it was probably going to be pretty useful across the org. And I just imagine working at a company that has like Ruby and Python and Java and Scala and like all these things. It's like every problem that you're trying to solve just gets so much harder because you're like, let's roll out SCA. It's like, it's like, all right, does it work for a hundred different languages? Probably not. And then you have to write some wrapper that combines multiple tools and like just the overhead I think is hard to quantify, but it's, it's definitely there. Yeah. You go from paved road to paved roads. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Well, yeah, I know we could probably discuss this all day, but I think that is a good open it up part of the topic. If anybody has thoughts on this, obviously message any of us. We're, we're happy to chat about this all day long. I'm Swathi, Jeevan, thank you both very much for coming. Uh, please, if you like this, subscribe and we will see you next month. Thanks, everyone. <laughs>